If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Mark, chapter 3. We're going to continue our study in Mark, chapter 3. While you're turning there, I... I well, let me do let me do a couple of things before we get into the sermon. First, I want to I want to encourage you. Pastor Matt uh, listed uh, some of the announcements that we have coming up, and and he pointed out that we have a ton going on in the life of our church right now, which is true and which is good. But one thing I want to call your attention to and make sure that you're saving the date for is what we're calling our Serve Team Rally. And so I usually try not to use this time for announcements, but this is one of those things that's that important. Okay, uh, we've got Serve Team Rally coming up on March the 10th, and you guys are going, what in the world is Serve Team Rally? Well, that's what I'm here for, to tell you. Serve Team Rally is going to be an all-church event, all-family event. This is for everybody in our church. And it's got a few goals. The, the first goal is to say thank you and to honor those of you guys who serve in so many ways in the life of our church on uh, our first impressions team and kids ministry and student ministry and tech and the band and audio um, security. I mean, we go on and on and on. Uh, and highlight the ways that people serve in the life of our church. Those are some of the more visible ways. There's some of you guys that serve in behind-the-scenes ways, and we want to say thank you. And so this event will be an opportunity for us to do that and to honor you and thank you for all the ways that you serve. It'll also be a night for equipping and training, however. Uh, we're going to have some time where we'll break up into our individual ministry team groups and, and learn how we can grow in, in the roles that we serve in and how we can get better and how we can level up uh, in those ministry areas. So it's going to be a night of equipping and training as well. But finally, it's going to be a night for people who aren't serving. Maybe you're here, maybe you're new to our church, or maybe you've just been sitting on the sidelines for a while. It's going to be a night where you can learn what it looks like to be a part of one of these serve teams and how you can take the step of becoming a member of one of those serve teams. And so for that reason, because it's for everybody who is already serving or those who are not yet serving, that means it's for all of us. And so I want to encourage you to mark your calendar for that March the 10th in the evening there. You can sign up now. The registration's online. Uh, but this is a big deal in the life of our church. So I want to encourage you to make sure that you attend uh, that event. Okay, announcements are over. Mark chapter 3. Before we get into the passage, I need to be honest with you. Is this a safe place where I can be honest and be uh, transparent about something that's in my life that I don't tell many people? I know it's being broadcast online, so you people online, be quiet about this, okay? I don't like the Beatles. I see. I know. I knew this was going to happen. See? There we go. I know. I know. It's controversial opinion, but I feel like... We know one another, we trust one another to a degree, and so I just want to share this part of my life with you. Uh, I recognize that they are heralded as one of the greatest bands, if not the greatest band of all time, and yet when I listen to their music, I feel nothing. And the thing about the Beatles, as you can tell by the reaction in the room right now, is they are a divisive figure. Some of you guys want to throw me out of the church right now. You're just like, just leave. Some of you guys are like, amen, finally somebody said it. I'm here to stand up for the people. They're a divisive uh, band. You either, in general, love them or you hate them. You either think they're the greatest thing that ever happened or you're like, what's the big deal? And I'm in that category for sure. And there's lots of stuff like that in life, isn't there? Lots of stuff like, so Taylor Swift is the modern day version of that. People are like, I don't know which side of it. Some of you guys are like, I watched the Super Bowl for the first time in my life. And some of you guys are like, why is she still on my TV, right? There's, there's different different perspectives on this person, divisive figures in our life. And uh, our passage today is going to cast Jesus in that kind of a, a light, a divisive figure, someone who, who doesn't leave people neutral. When Jesus shows up on the scene, in many ways, he demands a response. He demands you react in some way, shape, or form. And so in today's text, we're going to see four different types of people 
and how they respond or react to Jesus. And my goal for this morning, my, my ask of you really, is that you would look for yourself in this story. I'd like you to figure out which of these four types of people am I? And then hopefully we'll have some action items in response to that. Uh, we're gonna do verses seven through 35 because it's a long passage. Instead of reading it all at once, we're gonna work through it uh, in chunks, if that's okay with you. One final request, one final request. I'm not gonna go in order of the passage this morning, okay? And I know some of you OCD people, it's gonna stress you out. You're like, you're doing, you know, you're doing these verses at 22 before you did verse seven, and that's weird. Just hang with me, it'll be okay. Here's a dirty little secret. Mark, when he wrote the gospel, he didn't put it in order either. It's not in chronological order, it's in thematic order. And so that's a little Bible study note for you today. So if Mark can do it, then so can we. And so that's what we're gonna do, okay? So that's the plan. We're gonna look at Jesus and the four ways people respond to Jesus and see what it means for us, okay? And the first type of person you're gonna see in this text that we're gonna see in this text are people who are critical of Christians, critical of Christianity, critical of Jesus. These are, these are the haters, if you will, okay? We're gonna see this in verses 20 through, 22 through 30, so let's read that together. It says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and the prince of demons has cast out the demons. And he has called them to him and said to, and Jesus called to them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So what's going on here? What's going on here? Jesus is in this interaction with these scribes, these people who have come, it says, from Jerusalem. And if you'll remember in our study thus far, Jesus' fame is growing. Jesus' popularity is growing and his reputation is growing. And so his fame and popularity has finally reached Jerusalem. It's gotten to the center of Jewish life in Israel at that time. And these scribes have heard about this Jesus guy and they've heard what he's up to and they've heard what he's doing and they've come to investigate for themselves. And when they show up, they apparently see all that he's doing. They see him healing people. They see him casting out demons. They see him making the lame walk. They see all these things taking place. And they determine and decide, hey, this must be demonic, satanic activity. This isn't a work of God, but instead this is a work of Satan. What's interesting here is that by attributing this stuff, these things that are happening to Satan, they're saying something supernatural is taking place, right? They're observing what's going on and, and the fact that they attributed it to the demonic realm says, hey, something we can't explain is happening here, something otherworldly is happening here. But instead of attributing it to God, they say, you know what? This is evil, this is wicked, this is wrong. And so Jesus responds by telling them, hey, what you're saying doesn't even make sense. You're saying I'm leveraging the power of Satan to fight against the power of Satan. That doesn't make sense. How can Satan be against Satan? How can demons be against demons? He's, he's pointing out the logical inconsistency with their conclusion. 
And by implication, he's saying, hey, listen, you've missed it. There are only two options. This is either satanic or this is godly. This is Holy Spirit. And it clearly can't be satanic. And so it must be an act of God, a work of God. But they insist. They say, no, 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 no. This is wicked. This is evil. This is demonic. And in this, he, he says something in verses 28 through 30 uh, that, frankly, a lot of Christians worry about. He, he talks about the unforgivable sin. Have you heard of the unforgivable sin? All three synoptic gospels talk about this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all mention this little episode. And this is a, a phrase, this unpardonable sin that scares people, frankly. I mean, and it rightfully should, right? If there's something out there that you can't be forgiven for, we want to make sure we don't do that, Right? I remember even as a kid being really worried that I had committed the unpardonable sin because then I'm just out of luck and I have no hope. And so I, wanted, I do want to take a moment to clarify and explain what Jesus is talking about here. He, he, he makes a statement. He says, hey, listen, at the conclusion of this interaction with the scribes, at the conclusion of them attributing the mighty works of God to Satan, Jesus says, hey, listen, anything and everything can be forgiven. There's nothing that's off limits. All sins of man can be forgiven, except for this one. When you attribute the work of God to Satan, there's no way that can be forgiven. Now, one of the things that, uh, that confuses people is like, well, maybe I've done that in the past, but I've changed my mind. Can I go back from that? And I want to tell you that the rest of Scripture, there's a, there's a principle in Bible study where we, we say we interpret Scripture with Scripture. Perhaps you've heard someone say that, right? If you look at the rest of the Bible, you will find people who have said that the works that God are doing, God is doing are evil and wicked, and yet they've been redeemed. So you think about the Apostle Paul who actively and deliberately opposed, he was one of these scribes and Pharisees, actively and deliberately opposed the work of God and said it was wrong and put people to death for it. Was that sin not forgiven for Paul? No, of course not. He was redeemed. He was saved, his life was changed, and became an ambassador for Jesus across the world. And so Jesus does not mean that one instance of opposing the work of God, the work of the Spirit, is it. If you've done it one time, it's over. But the, the consistent, repeated, and final rejection of God's work, the work of God's Spirit, is unforgivable. New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington summarizes it this way. This is how he phrases it. He says, the specific, active, and final choice to declare the person and work of Jesus as being demonic in origin, that is the unpardonable sin. So he, he categorizes a few things. He says, one, it's got to be specific. We're saying not just that Jesus isn't God. We're saying Jesus is Satan. Active, like I'm, I'm after this, pursuing this. I'm working actively against the work of Jesus in my life or in other people's lives. And then final, I go to my grave with this disposition, this opinion, this posture that the work, the person and work of Jesus is evil. And really, the way you can kind of summarize this is that the only way that your sins can be, that any sin you commit cannot be forgiven is if you go to your grave refusing to accept the work that Jesus did for you on the cross. That's the only sin that can't ever be forgiven because you've missed your opportunity. Jesus, right up until the final moment of death, is standing willing and ready to forgive any and all sins. We see this at the cross, right? He looks over at the, at the other man on the cross and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And within hours, that man is dead. So Jesus is ready and willing right up until death to forgive any and all sins. But if you go to your grave rejecting 
who Jesus is and what he's done for you, the Bible says that sin can't be forgiven. And so we've got these scribes, okay? And Jesus gives a strong condemnation, a warning to them, says, hey, be careful. You're on dangerous ground here. God is moving in an incredible way. God's, God's bringing the kingdom of God to earth, and you're saying Satan's at work. You need to be careful. But these people are critical of the faith. They're hostile towards Jesus. And there are a couple of marks of people that you'll find that are hostile to the faith or critical of our faith. The, the first one, you'll notice these people have no fear of God. They have no fear of God. The Bible uses this phrase, fear of God, to describe people who recognize how incredible and awesome and powerful and strong and mighty and holy God is. And when we ponder that fact, that God could create the world just by speaking, that God could hold the world together just with his, a word of his power, the Bible says, that every molecule that exists in the world is firing and, rapid, uh, and spinning in rapid pace and everything exists all because God says so, that that God exists, it should scare us a little bit. Not in a way that we like don't want anything to do with him, but it should bring a measure of awe and wonder and even a measure of fear of, wow, how powerful that God must be and how small I am in light of him. People who are hostile to the faith, they have no fear of God. They feel like they are confident. They are sure of themselves and on strong footing. People who, have no, people who are hostile to the faith or critical of the faith, they are also actively opposed to God's mission. Actively opposed to God's mission. That means taking steps, proactive steps to stop the mission of God going forward. Not passively just saying whatever those Christians want to do is fine with me. No, they are fighting against the mission of God. Have you ever met people like this who are hostile to the faith, who are critical of the Christian faith? We're in a season in our country where things are changing. Uh, we, we don't live in the same uh, country that we lived in 10 years ago or certainly 20 years ago and definitely not 30 and 40 and 50 years ago. The climate and culture in this nation in regards to the Christian faith is different. There's kind of two camps to this conversation that's happening out there, right? So on, on one side, you'll, you'll meet people that say, that say, hey, listen, th there's nothing going on. Nothing's different. You Christians are just freaking out. You're just getting all up in arms over Starbucks cups and happy holidays at the checkout counter. Like, we're really, it's not, it's not a big deal. Quit worrying about it. Chill out. You guys are overreacting. And there's another camp that says we're at war. We're at war. The culture is trying to stamp out Christianity and we're at a battle. And if we don't stand up and fight, then we're going to lose Christianity in this country, right? There's kind of two sides to that debate. And I want to speak quickly. I don't want to get, make this a cultural political sermon. That's not the theme of this text, but it's worth talking about as we think about our, our place in this world, our place in this culture. And Christians ought to be truth tellers above all. We ought to be honest with ourselves. And so hyperbole in either direction, I think, is wrong. And on one hand, I would say it's incredibly naive to say that nothing's going on to say that nothing has changed, to say that Christianity is exactly the same, that our access to Christianity, our access to our values, our, our, um, our, our society kind of has the same beliefs uh, system as it did 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 years ago. Nothing's changed. I think it's naive to say that. Then you look around the world and say, it's harder now to be a Christian in this country. It's harder now to live out maybe Christian values and Christian uh, convictions than it perhaps ever has been. And so we shouldn't say that. that would be, I think that would be wrong, and I think there's too much evidence to say that that's the case. 
But on the other hand, I think we're in dangerous territory if we say that Christianity is under attack in this country and that we are being persecuted in this country for being a Christian. I'm standing up here with lights on, with a microphone, with a camera shining on my face, telling people about Jesus. And nobody here is worried that someone's going to break through that door and haul us to jail, are you? No. In fact, it's an insult, I would say, to our brothers and sisters who are in Nigeria or Afghanistan or North Korea who could never dream of gathering like this to say that we are under attack. And so is it no big deal? Is nothing going on? No, that's not true at all. Are we being persecuted for our faith and at risk of death for our Christian faith? No, that's not true either. The truth is probably somewhere in between the two. And so what do we do with that? I would encourage you to to live, communicate, and vote your convictions for sure. Do that. I would encourage you to, uh, to, to, to not live in fear or anger. There's no reason for Christians to live in fear or anger. We have nothing to fear in the future. Even if we were being persecuted, even if our faith was at risk, even if our lives were at risk, what is death to the Christian but glory, right? So we have nothing to be afraid of. And thirdly, I would encourage us to trust the Lord with our future. Let's just keep being faithful to follow Jesus, proclaim Jesus, to stand boldly for Jesus, and whatever the Lord wants to do with that. If he wants to send persecution that scatters and grows a church, that's his prerogative, and we'll submit to it. If he wants to give us a season of flourishing and a Christian community in this country, we're fine with that too. But let's don't live worried about what's coming, worried about what's happening. Let's live out our convictions and trust the Lord with the future. All right, soapbox off. That's great. (laughs) Second type of person you're going to see in our passage this morning is people who are confused by Christian, by people who are confused by Christianity and by Christians. People that don't think it makes any sense. Look at verses 20 and 21, just a small little section here, and it says this. It says, Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. This is an interesting little uh, note that's only in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Matthew and Luke and John don't record this fact, but there was a season in Jesus' life where his family thought he was nuts, which is, you know, not unreasonable. Uh, He's running around claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to cast demons out and heal people, and apparently they took a look at what was going on in Jesus' life and said, hey, hey, you're you're out of your mind. We're going to have you institutionalized. This is crazy. And the text doesn't say what it was about his behavior that made them think that. It could have been the fact that he was picking a fight with the Pharisees and the scribes. That could have been like crazy to them. Why would you do that? They can kill you. They can throw you in jail. They can excommunicate you. Why would you pick a fight with these people? Perhaps it was the fact that he was ministering in such a way and at such a level that he didn't even have time or space to eat. And they're going, man, you're not even taking care of yourself. You're crazy. I I don't know. The text doesn't tell us what they saw that made them think he was crazy, but apparently they did. And this is not all that uncommon for people to look at believers who live in radical obedience to God and go, you're crazy. I don't get it, right? Have you ever encountered someone in your life who looks at you that way because of your Christian convictions, because of the way that you live your life? You do stuff that doesn't make any sense and people go, man, what's wrong with you? This is weird. You Christian people are weird. You say, amen, you're right, we are. People who are confused by Christianity, they think the Christian faith is extreme. That's how you can, it's kind of sign number one, this is the kind of person we're talking about. They think the Christian faith 
is extreme. Why would you spend one of your own, you only get two weeks of time off at work every year. Why would you spend a whole week of that going to student camp to be a chaperone for some kids in church? That's crazy. That's weird, right? Why would you give away 10% of your income to a church? Don't you know how far that money would go in the market? You could do so much with that. Why would you give that away? I think the Christian faith is extreme. People who are confused by Christianity also try to explain away our faith, don't they? They'll try to explain away our faith. They'll say, there's, there's no way you really believe that stuff. You're just going through the motions because it makes you feel good inside, but you're not really committed to these things. I, I, I can't fathom that you actually believe and live this way because you think it's true. The only proper response to people like this, to someone in this situation, is found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The proper response to a Jesus who gave his life for us is to give our lives in return. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God, which is your spiritual act of worship, it says. Verse 2 says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then you'll be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says, hey, listen, when you consider the mercies of God, when you consider what Jesus has done for you, the only response is to give your life back in return. And that doesn't make sense. Paul says in another place in the book of Corinthians uh, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. In other words, they're right to be confused by our faith because it only makes sense to those who really know and love and trust Jesus. Third category of people we're going to see in our text is what I'm calling comfort Christians. Okay, comfort Christians. And zoom up to Mark chapter 3, verse 7 through 12. It says that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when a great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So in this section, we get a picture of what's happening in Jesus' ministry. His, his fame has grown. His popularity has spread. Crowds are pursuing him and chasing him so much so that he's worried he might get crushed. And so he tells the disciples, hey, have a boat ready so we can escape if need be. If they kind of press in on me, press on on me, I can jump into this boat and we can go and I'll live to minister another day. They're pressing in on him in, 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 in a serious manner. But notice what it says in verse 8 about why they're pursuing Jesus. Did you catch this? Look in verse 8 again. It says, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. It's important to know that this crowd is coming for what Jesus can do, not for what Jesus will say. This crowd is showing up for what Jesus can do for them, not for the message that he's come to declare. These are people who can't walk, they can't see, they're demon-possessed, they're sick, they want help, they've heard Jesus can help them, so they come looking for Jesus. 
What you'll find in Scripture, and we'll see later in our text here, is that a lot of times those Christians don't stick around once what Jesus can do for them is done. So some marks of a, a comfort Christian. How do we know we're talking about a, what we're calling a comfort Christian? Number one, they love what Jesus can do for them, not what Jesus says. They love what Jesus can do for them, but not so much what Jesus has to say. This is a self-centered faith. This is a, a faith that sees Jesus as only useful to you because of how he can help you. And there's a sense in which it's okay to start here. I don't want to be you know, too heavy-handed here. It's, it's okay to start with this, right? All of us, in some way, come to Jesus initially for what he can do for us, right? right? We come because we hear, hey, we can find salvation in no other name but Jesus. All right, I'm going to that Jesus guy then, right? We come because we hear we can find life and purpose and hope and a future in Christ. We're like, I want those things. I'm going to Jesus. That's, the, that's how it's supposed to start. That's how it's supposed to begin, the problem is that many people often don't move beyond what Jesus can do for them to how they may follow him with their whole lives. They're, they're only interested in how Jesus can make their life better. They're not interested in laying their life down for him. They treat Jesus like a genie in a bottle, or if they'll do some religious things like prayer or church attendance, then God will give them the things that they desire in their lives. And here's the thing, though. Here's the problem with this, is that Jesus isn't just our genie who gives us what we want or even what we need. Jesus also is our Lord, who has a way for us to live, a, a, a plan for our life, a, a call to discipleship that requires following him in all areas of our lives. And he has some things to say to us. Jesus had some hard things to say, didn't he? And how we react to what Jesus has to say is often the mark of our faith. The second thing you can know about people who are we calling comfort Christians is comfort Christians abandon Jesus when things get hard. Comfort Christians abandon Jesus when things get hard. You can see this in John chapter 6. One of these famous stories in John chapter 6, Jesus is feeding the 5,000 people, and they're, they're, they're filled with the bread and the fish, and it's this amazing miracle. And a similar situation is happening there. The crowd is kind of pressing in on him. And so Jesus, in the middle of the night, he decides he wants to go to the other side of the lake. He doesn't use the boat, though. He just walks across the lake because he's Jesus. He can do that. And they come looking for him again. And Jesus says to the people that come looking for him, you're not looking for me for the right reasons. You're looking for me because I fed you yesterday. That's what you want from me. It's more miracles, more food. And he uses this opportunity to teach them. He's saying, listen, I've got something to say to you. Because, and he begins to, to launch into this teaching about how he's the bread of life and how we are to feast on him. And he launches into this analogy that communion is later going to fulfill and clarify for us. And he says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people are like, man, this guy is weird. And it says in John chapter 6, verse 66, that after he said this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. When what Jesus had to say to them got difficult, they said, I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. It's not worth it anymore. This is not the 12 disciples we're talking about. They're using this word disciples for this crowd of people who are following him. I think it's interesting that the text uses the word disciples to describe these people. These are people who look and act and talk and behave like Christians, like followers of Jesus. They're engaged. They're, they're following him around. They're listening to his messages. They're doing the things he says to do. But then there comes a time when Jesus asks for a next level of commitment, and they go, oh, that's too far. I'm not going to do that. 
and they turn and go back to their old lives. Last week I told you I was out of town uh, going to class uh, for a, a seminary class that I'm in. And the, the group that I'm in, my class, there's eight of us in this class, and we live all over the country. There's people in California, Texas, North Carolina, Florida. And so we meet in different spots to have class. And so this past week, we met in Colorado, which in February is a very cold place to have a meeting. We met in Colorado, and in between classes, uh, somebody had a great idea. They said, hey, listen, I, I know this area, and there's a really gorgeous hike not far from where we are. And it's, when, you, when you get to the end of this hike, you're sitting at the top of this mountain. And you can, over, you can look over the valley and see the most beautiful, breathtaking sights you can possibly see. It's a short hike. It's a mile and a half long. And we could do it in the time that we have between these sessions. Do you guys want to go? And I thought, yeah, that sounds fantastic. I mean, it's gorgeous. It's covered in snow. We're at 10,000 feet of elevation, so we're way on up in the air. I didn't come prepared for a hike. I didn't bring hiking boots. I didn't bring like really great winter clothes, but I, I felt like, you know, it's gonna be worth it. I can do this. So we drive to the trailhead and there's seven or eight of us and we get out of the cars and, and I've got tennis shoes on, not hiking boots. And I take, I don't know, it took me about 10 or 15 steps before I realized this was a terrible mistake. This is just terrible. I'm, I'm walking, the air is so thin you can't breathe. They told me the hike was a mile and a half, but they didn't tell me it was straight up. We're going up the mountain. I, I, I don't have the right shoes on. Uh, they said the, the trail would have been plowed. It wasn't plowed. My feet are like falling like almost knee high into the snow. I can't breathe. I'm like sweating and cold. You know that feeling? You know what I'm talking about? When you're like freezing, but you're sweating, it's miserable. I'll tell you what, I started out real committed to this hike. But man, 10, 15, 20 steps top, I was out. I didn't want nothing to do with this. I'm like <gasps> huffing and puffing. I'm finding myself like uh, irrationally angry at the really skinny athletic guy who thought this was a good idea. You know what I'm talking about? I'm like, oh, you're one of those guys. And you hurt yourself for fun. Cool. It's awesome. <laughs> I tell you what, there's a couple of us in the same boat as me. We're kind of lagging the group up the trail. If it wasn't for the, peer, the sheer peer pressure of being in a group of guys and not wanting to be outdone by the other ones, there's no way I did it. But we did it. We made it to the top. I told Taylor, my wife, when it was over, she goes, how was it? I go, I almost died. So <laughs> almost died. She almost lost me there on that mountain. I started out committed to this. Committed mostly because I thought I was going to make a great Instagram picture when I got to the top. By the time I got to the top, I wasn't doing anything extra. I was like, all right, can we go back now? Can we go down? I started out committed, but it got hard. It began to ask of me more than I really was willing to give. It began to demand more of me than I thought I had the ability to give, and I wanted to turn back. I wanted to give up. And what Jesus is trying to show people in this text, what Jesus is trying to show people throughout his life on earth, is that genuine believers follow Jesus no matter what. Genuine believers follow Jesus no matter what. And the reality is that Jesus is asking us for wholehearted devotion to him. So many people like the idea of following Jesus, but when it gets down to brass tacks, they don't actually want to follow him. And there's a danger here. I'm calling these people comfort Christians because a lot of these people are legitimate believers. But the Bible says if you're not willing to keep going, if you're not willing to persevere to the end, if you're not willing to keep walking with Jesus, even when it gets hard, then your faith should be in question. 
friend of mine, Dean and Sarah, he wrote a book about Christians who think they're Christians, but they're not Christians. And this is what he says about this type of comfort Christianity. He says, self-proclaimed Christians who worship a God that requires no self-sacrifice, no obedience, no submission, and no surrender are not worshiping the God of the Bible, no matter how much they claim to love Jesus. I got to tell you, that's a, that's a hard word to hear. It's a hard word to hear for me. It's a hard word to hear as a pastor as I worry about who may be a part of our faith family who says, I like what Jesus can do for me, but I don't like him enough to follow him with my whole life. To hear that we're not actually worshiping Jesus, we may even just be worshiping ourselves. Which leads us to this last type of person we're going to call the committed Christian. Verses 13 to 19 says this. So Jesus went up to the mountain and he called to him those he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, who he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and to have authority, and to cast out demons. And he appointed 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name uh, Boandrines, that's a good name, that is the sons of thunder. Verse 18, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. In this little portion of our text today, Jesus calls the whole lot of his disciples. I told you Mark didn't go in order. You guys have been studying our text. You know that he had already called four of these disciples. This is a summary passage where Mark explains all 12 disciples that Jesus has called to himself. And these are what we're going to call committed Christians. What I love about these committed Christians is they are not perfect, are they? If you know your Bible, you know how this story's going to go. You know we're going to see James screw up. We're going to see John screw up. We're going to see Peter screw up. We're going to see Thomas screw up. None of these guys are perfect. And yet, the Bible calls these men faithful. It says in, in verse 15, there's really two marks of a committed Christian here. 16, no, 14, there it is. Verse 14, two marks of a committed Christian. He said he appointed the 12 so that they might do two things, it says, that they, that he might, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority and to cast out demons. There's two marks of faithful, committed Christians, two marks of disciples. One, they are with Jesus. They walk with Jesus. They're close to Jesus. They pursue Jesus. They walk closely with the Lord. And the second is they live on mission for him. Jesus said, the purpose of these disciples, what I'm calling you to is to be with me and to be sent out from me. The same is true for you and I. The call for Christians is to be with the Lord and to be sent out from the Lord. Which this begs the question for me and for us is how do we know if we're in the committed Christian category or if we're in the comfort Christian category? How do I know which box I fit in? And then there's a sense in which you're not going to know until the moment of testing comes. But you can evaluate your heart now and ask yourself some diagnostic questions. I want you to think with me. If Jesus asked you to devote your life to the mission field, what would you say? If Jesus clearly communicated to you, I want you to leave what you know. I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your job. I want you to leave the city that you love. I want you to leave your stuff behind. And I want you to go to a foreign mission field and spend your life for the sake of the gospel there, what would you say? Is it, yes, Lord, here I am, send me? Or is it, no, Lord, that's too far, I won't go there with you? 
I wonder if following Jesus meant for you being estranged from your family. Would you still follow Jesus? If you had to give up your family to follow him, would you, would you do it? If that was a choice you were forced to make. If you had to choose between having tremendous wealth and being able to do whatever, whenever you wanted, for whomever you wanted on this earth, or following Jesus, what would you choose? Some of these questions are real questions. Jesus asked real people when he encountered them. And the answer to that question reveals a little bit about your heart, where you are on the spectrum. And be honest, I don't, I don't know. Again, you never know how you're going to answer these questions until they happen. And I'm not trying to discourage anyone here today. What I am trying to do is set a vision for you guys, a picture for what committed followership of Jesus looks like. Maybe you're here today and you're going, I don't know what I would do. Maybe you're here today and you go, no, I wouldn't. I'd probably give up. That's okay. Who said earlier, it's okay to start as someone who needs from Jesus more than you're willing to give. That's okay. But it's not okay to stay there. Does that make sense? So it's okay to go, I'm not there yet, Lord. I'm not mature enough yet, Lord. I haven't grown in my obedience enough yet, Lord. I haven't uh, detached from this world enough yet, Lord, to answer these questions, yes, I'll go, send me, or yes, I'm willing to do that for you. It's okay to be there, okay? Hear me say that. It's okay to be there. But it's not okay for us to stay there. We've got to continue moving with Jesus, walking with Jesus, growing in our faith with him to where we're willing to go anywhere and do anything he asks us to do. One of the friends I was with this past week in this class, he was telling me that at their church, when they do baptisms, they ask, will you go anywhere Jesus asks you to go and do anything Jesus asks you to do? They ask that at their baptism. I think that's so cool. It's a mark of genuine faith, genuine discipleship. I'll say one more time, it's okay to start as a comfort Christian. It's just not okay to stay there. James and John wanted positions of power in the kingdom. Peter denied Christ at the most pivotal moment. These guys aren't rock stars, but they went on to be giants of the faith because they kept going. They kept following. What does it look like to walk closely with the Lord as we close? Really quickly. Walking closely with Jesus means gathering your family and getting to church every single week that's humanly possible. That's the most basic of the Christian faith is to be here. I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning that you're here. That's great. Make it a habit every week to be here. Commit to gathering with God's people, sitting under his word, worshiping the risen Lord. Two, it looks like waking up each day to read God's word and pray. If we're really going to follow Jesus, we've got to know Jesus. And I want to encourage you to spend time with Jesus. Three, it means doing everything you can to bring your life into conformity with the Bible. Four, it means identifying areas of sin in your life and relentlessly trying to kill them so that we might love Jesus more, know Jesus more, and live more like Jesus called us to live. And then second, it means living on mission for him. Living on mission for him. I would encourage you to find a place in the church to serve and commit to it. Find a place to give of your time for the sake of this mission and go all out. I would encourage you to look for people who are far from God, who don't know Jesus in your life, and tell them about Jesus. This stuff is not rocket science. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's not complicated, is it? I want to encourage you. If you want to move from being a comfort Christian to being a committed Christian, these are the steps. Prioritize your relationship with God and live on mission for him. That's it. And by practicing this, by doing this repeatedly, by living this way, you begin to be different. You begin to be changed. You begin to make, become 
made into this committed Christian that you and I desire to be, that Jesus desires for us to be. The last section of this passage is verses 31 to 35. His mother and brothers come. We thought he was crazy earlier. As they're standing outside, they sent to him. They called, says, Jesus, come on in here. Probably trying to get him away from this crowd. The crowd was sitting around him, and the crowd said to Jesus, hey, your, your mother and brothers are outside, and they're looking for you. And Jesus responded, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus ends this section by defining what it means to be a part of the family of God. It means being near to the Lord. And Jesus has shown up on the scene. Jesus has shown up in your life. Maybe you didn't know Jesus before you walked in here today, but you walked into a church where we've talked about him. We've talked about what he's done for you on the cross and how putting your faith in Jesus will grant you forgiveness of sins. And this Jesus is a divisive figure and he asks for commitment from you. And so my prayer this morning for myself, this has been a hard message to study for and prepare for personally. My prayer for you, church, is that we might keep taking steps forward to move from Christians who just want what we can get from Jesus to Christians who are willing to lay down our lives for Jesus because he laid down his life for us, church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of your word. The fact that you show us in no uncertain terms who you are. You show us what you value. You show us what you care about. You show us who we ought to be. You show us what we ought to love, what we ought to spend our life on. God, in your kindness to us, you haven't left us to live this life alone, but instead you've provided your Holy Spirit to guide us. You've provided the church to come alongside and encourage us. God, you've given us an action plan in your word. And so Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith required to continue to grow. It takes a great amount of faith to trust you, to keep moving forward in our faith. And so Lord, would you help us in that area? Lord, for those of us here who feel weak and frail in our faith, would you encourage us that our own strength, our own abilities are not what makes us acceptable to you, but instead, Lord, you have made us acceptable to you by what you've done on the cross. You've been obedient for us. You've been faithful for us. And so would you help us to put our trust in you and you alone? And would you give us the courage to keep walking forward with you even when it's hard, even when it's costly, because that's what you did for us as you walked forward step by step to the cross. And so, Lord, we love you. I thank you for this time together. Lord, help us to worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.